The Bible is an ancient library full of ancient ideas, including ideas about Scripture itself and how it works. Now, humanity comes up with brilliant ideas all the time, generation after generation. What makes the ancient ideas especially interesting is twofold. First, they're often unfamiliar. They're strange. They're different than what we're used to. In fact, it's sometimes the oldest ideas that are the most new to us, the most challenging and provocative, and therefore the most interesting. And second, as great ideas emerge in human life, generally speaking, the newer ones replace the older ones, and over time, the older ones fade away. But we keep some of the best and most useful of the old ideas around, passing them down like treasures. And treasures are interesting. So, what ancient ideas about Scripture itself are in the Bible's library? One shining example is in the stories of Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem that all four Gospels place right around the time of the Passover festival, just days before Jesus' arrest and execution. All of which raises a question, a mystery and a challenge at the heart of Palm Sunday. If the crowds welcomed Jesus so warmly at first with praise and celebration and shouts of Hosanna, why, just a few days later, do they turn on him and call for his crucifixion? And while we're at it, why all those palm branches anyway? I'm Matthew Meyer Bolton, and this is Strange New World, a show about understanding the Bible for skeptics, believers, and everybody in between. This is part six of our seven-part series on understanding Easter, and in this episode, we'll tackle the challenge of Palm Sunday. But we'll start with an ancient idea, unfamiliar, strange, and interesting all at once, from Scripture, about Scripture. For most people in the ancient world, the scrolls of Scripture weren't something to read. Most people in those days weren't literate. So, the scrolls of scripture were typically something to hear. The words on those old scrolls, then, were like the notes on the pages of a musical score. They weren't made real and accessible. They weren't brought to life until a reader read them out loud, performed them, brought them into being and shape and tone of voice. And we can take this analogy between scripture and performance, or if you like, between scripture and script, one step further. For many in the ancient world, prestigious passages of scripture didn't just describe the past or poetically prophesy about the future in a general way. No, these passages, it was thought, could be fulfilled. In other words, they could be enacted or embodied in a way that brought them to life in the present, in the here and now, much like an actor embodies a script on a stage. Here's another analogy. Picture your wardrobe, the garments hanging there on hangers in your closet. Imagine a jacket, say, that fits you especially well. There it is, hanging there, flat on a hanger, waiting to be filled out and embodied. A child could wear it, and that would give it some form, but she wouldn't fill it out entirely. The sleeves would droop and dangle down below her hands. But if you take the jacket and put it on, 
your arm, as you slide it in, will fit perfectly, filling out the sleeve, giving it its full and complete form, just as the jacket's designer intended. And the result is that we can see the jacket's design in all its beauty, and at the same time, the jacket helps reveal the shape and beauty of your arm. Now, the ancient idea was that particular prestigious passages of scripture are like that. They hang there on hangers in the wardrobe until a time comes when they are inhabited, filled out by particular events or particular people at particular times. And this could happen, it was thought, more than once, just as you might wear the jacket more than once. The story of the Exodus, for example, the Israelites' escape from enslavement in Egypt, was considered a garment in Israel's wardrobe that could and would reappear in salvation history. God saved God's people once in that ancient form, that classic paradigm of liberation, and God will do it again. The Exodus story reveals a kind of template, a divine signature, and if we stay alert and keep an eye out for its contours, we'll be able to recognize it when God is on the move again, liberating God's people here and now, following the template, just as in the days of old. The stories of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem are brimming with this ancient idea of fulfillment. First, as we've seen in earlier episodes of this series, Jesus' choice to ride into town not on a warhorse but on a donkey is a fulfillment, an enactment of the prophet Zechariah's vision of the long-awaited king entering the holy city in victorious humility declaring peace to the nations. Even the particular route into town is part of the performance. In the 14th chapter of Zechariah, the prophet declares that God will enter Jerusalem by way of the Mount of Olives on the day of the Lord. And that's precisely the route that Jesus decides to take, riding on his donkey. This is a form of street theater, we might say, a performance bringing to life an ancient script from Scripture's library. The crowds apparently know Zechariah too. They take Jesus' cue, themselves embodying the old prophecy by lining the streets and shouting with jubilation. And what they shout, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, is an enactment of a script from Psalm 118, including the word Hosanna, which literally means, save we pray, or even save now. And what about all those palm branches? Well, they perform yet another script, iconically evoking the festival of Sukkot, the Jewish festival of booths, in which the participants would process around the temple altar, rejoicing by waving branches, as God instructs Moses in the book of Leviticus. God says to Moses, You shall take the fruit of majestic trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall live in booths for seven days. Booths are temporary shelters constructed out of leafy branches. So that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
In other words, Sukkot is a celebratory reenactment of the part of the Exodus story when the Israelites lived in makeshift shelters in the wilderness. And so here, as Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, the palm branches enact and signal the people's joyful hope that like Moses, Jesus will embody and fulfill a new exodus and deliver them from bondage. In the same way, by spreading their cloaks on the road, the crowds signal that they recognize Jesus as royalty, enacting an old passage from 2 Kings in which, you guessed it, crowds lay down their cloaks for a new king. Everywhere you look in the Palm Sunday stories, scripture is being performed and embodied, and underneath it all is the ancient idea that scripture is something to be fulfilled, bringing to life ancient patterns from Zechariah, Psalms, Leviticus, and 2 Kings, four classic garments in Israel's wardrobe. The atmosphere of joy and excitement is because the crowd is starting to believe that Jesus just might fit these garments perfectly, embodying them, fulfilling them, like a human arm sliding into a beautifully designed sleeve. The script of Scripture is coming to life before their eyes. And not just before their eyes, they're part of it. They're immersed within it. They're filling out their roles right here, right now. This excitement explains the praise, the palpable hope rippling through the crowds. And it may also explain why they turn on him so soon. To understand this, we have to do more than intellectually wrestle with it. We have to emotionally wrestle with it, too. Here we come face to face with the challenge of Palm Sunday. The question is... What are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? Think of the dearest, most precious hopes you have for yourself, for your loved ones, for your neighborhood, for your wider community, and for creation as a whole. Hope is a kind of longing, and the shape and quality of our longing is the shape and quality of our lives. We make our decisions, our daily decisions about how to spend our time, and also the bigger, broader decisions about how to invest our other resources based largely on what we're longing for, what we're waiting for, what we're hoping for. If we're hungry, our hope is for bread. If we're captive, our hope is for freedom. If we're abused or downtrodden, our hope is for sanctuary and for justice and for dignity. In this sense, our hopes define us. They determine the decisions we make. But the old saying holds true. If we show someone our bank statement and our calendar, our appointment book, they'll show us our true values, what we're really longing for, what we're willing to invest in, where our hopes really lie. And the same is true communally. Look at your town or city budget or your state or federal budget And you can make out a sketch of our collective hopes, an outline of the world that we're longing for together. All of this, if we do it honestly, can be sobering. It's a real challenge to confront and assess our true hopes in this way. 
And why does Palm Sunday bring this challenge front and center? Here's why. Call to mind one of your deepest hopes, one that you feel all the way down to your toes, and feel the intensity, the mix of urgency and wish, yearning and desire. For many Jews in first century Palestine, the longing at the heart of their lives was for the day of the Lord, which some interpreted as a time of military conquest and fantastic prosperity, an end to the brutal Roman occupation, and a return to the glory days of yore. For them, it wouldn't take long to decide that the rabbi from Nazareth is in fact a disappointing imposter. His arrival seems promising, but no conquest materializes, and soon enough, He's betrayed by his own disciples and seized and imprisoned by the Romans. So much for deliverance. He's just one more in a long line of disappointments. But Jesus has a deeper, more enduring form of liberation in mind. The day of the Lord, yes, but not a time of conquest or vengeance. Zechariah, after all, envisions the new king riding not on a warhorse, but on a donkey declaring not retribution, but peace to the nations. And Jesus, after all, spends his ministry as a healer and a teacher who welcomes tax collectors and sinners. Strong testimony that for him, the day of the Lord, is not a time of violence and contempt, but rather of health and forgiveness, inclusion and peace. For Jesus, what's dawning is the kingdom of God. That's what the day of the Lord means for him. A new era of liberation and mercy, a renewal of the rainbow covenant, a beginning, only a beginning, but a definite beginning of the reign of the God of love and justice. What's at stake here is two different visions of the day of the Lord, or the kingdom of God, or what Jesus calls at the very beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, the year of the Lord's favor. On one hand, a vision of this new era as fulfilling old patterns of conquest, triumph, and restoration to power, such that what we're waiting for is a great divine warrior to come and settle the score. And on the other hand, Jesus' vision of this new era as fulfilling another very different pattern in the Bible's library, this one laid out in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, the pattern known as Jubilee. Here's how it worked, at least ideally. Every seventh day is a Sabbath day, a day of rest and delight. Every seventh year is a Sabbath year, when even the land was given a year of rest. And every seventh Sabbath year plus one, that is every 50th year, is a jubilee year of restoration and renewal, a kind of Sabbath writ large, in which the land rests, enslaved people are freed, and debts are forgiven. Now, just as the Jubilee is a kind of Sabbath writ large, for Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God is a kind of Jubilee writ large, a Jubilee of Jubilees, a new era of rest, freedom, forgiveness, and joy. This is the deeper liberation that Jesus has in mind. He comes not merely to vanquish the Roman oppressors, but to inaugurate a journey we are all invited to join 
dedicated to ending oppression once and for all, and to establishing a new world of justice and mercy, love and delight, a great jubilee, such that what we're waiting for isn't a time of warfare and settling scores, but rather a great festival, a time of freedom and rejoicing. The challenge of Palm Sunday is the challenge of confronting these two visions of the Day of the Lord and choosing between them. Conquest versus forgiveness. Justice and prosperity for me or for us versus justice and prosperity for everyone. And before we jump in and proclaim our allegiance to the second of these visions, we'd best look again at our bank statements and our calendars and communally at our town and city and state and federal budgets. What we're truly hoping for isn't only a matter of what we think and what we say, it's a matter of what we're actually investing in, of where we're actually spending our time and our resources. Hope itself is a kind of script that we embody every day. And so we may well ask, which vision are we actually choosing? performing, investing in, bringing to life, in the big, broad strokes of our lives and also in our everyday interactions. Conquest or forgiveness? Justice and prosperity for me and for us, or justice and prosperity for our neighbors as ourselves? That's the challenge of Palm Sunday. It's a call to self-reflection, a call to humility, and a call to action. No doubt there were also those in the crowds that day who caught a glimpse of all this, the dawn of the great jubilee, who waved their palm branches and remembered the exodus and cried out, Hosanna, save us now, both as a plea and as a joyful act of praise. And as they watched the events of the following days unfold, the disciples lose their nerve and the authorities fear the crowds and the crowds transform into a disappointed, resentful mob. Perhaps the good news, the sheer joy of that procession would not let them go. Perhaps they felt compassion for the disciples, for the crowds, even for the authorities. And perhaps they reasoned that If God's great jubilee is dawning, that new day of rest and justice and forgiveness and delight, then we may as well start acting like it. We may as well begin investing our energies into works of mercy. We may as well open our hearts to bigger, bolder kinds of hope, longings on behalf of ourselves and also on behalf of our neighbors. We may as well forgive debts free one another from enslavements, let the land rest, let creation heal, build a world of dignity and grace. If this rabbi from Nazareth really is the one, and if he's right that the ancient library is as much script as scripture, if we each have our part to play in the drama of what's to come, the performance that brings the Bible to life, then we may as well begin today. After all, what are we waiting for?
Strange New World is a SALT Project production written and produced by me, Matthew Meyer Bolton, with help from Elizabeth Meyer Bolton and Gretchen Summers. Music is by Pablo J. Garman and Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, spread the word and give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help people find us. And feel free to drop us a line at community at saltproject.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and see you next time.